Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Wild Irish Girl, which is Sydney Owenson's 1806 national tale novel about an epic dipshit named Horatio Crumbum who gets very turned for a harp playing Irish woman. Uh, so I'm not, I'm sure no one needs to be reminded whose pick this is, but nonetheless, uh, Tristan, why are we reading this? Oh, uh, we are reading this because this novel is completely insane in the most delightful of ways. And, and I, I love it. Sydney Owenson, by the way, was cool as shit, uh, with much better politics than many of her contemporary authors in the, quote, national tale genre, which we'll talk a bit about what that is. She was a radical, um, and, you know, certainly by the standards of the early 19th century, late 18th century, a small R Republican at a time when a lot of this sort of literature and sorry, Sir Walter, you know, I love you, uh, but was pretty <laughs> imperialist and colonialist. Like, that's not. Sorry, Walt. Yeah, sorry, Walt. Again, I, your books are awesome. You kind of sucked. Uh, but uh, it, like, we'll get into this. But I really suspect that this novel actually knows how goofy it is, and that the goofiness, in some ways, becomes part of its political argument. In other words, there's an ambivalence or warning of a kind, maybe, particularly in the ludicrous ending that I always want to read as part of its political claim. That was uh, an argument of the fourth chapter of my dissertation, actually. <laughs> but, uh, oh, <laughs> but well. We'll we'll see if you guys, uh, if I could persuade you guys that that might be the case. And yeah, like I I read this a long time ago. Um, I first read it in this fantastic course taught by by Michael Gamer on 18th and 19th century national tales that was about how these novels produce the concept of the nation in the specifically British context and United Kingdom context. And that class was in 2000, right? I think it was a sophomore in college, right at the end of this flurry of scholarship um, on nationalism in the period that I'll talk a bit about when we get to the context. But I sort of wanted to come back to it with you guys because I think that conversation has to look so different now, like post-Brexit and then post the resurgence of right-wing nationalist and fascist movements all over the place, and also just well into this century of shitty neoliberal capital hegemony. So I'm stoked, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as usual, I wanted to read this because I heard that it was bonkers. And I am always on board for bonkers. Not like I'm here. I love it. This is squarely in Tristan's favorite genre of novels, which are feckless boob go somewhere. <laughs> he finds that place weird, but also fascinating. Uh, he then gets his head crammed up some lady's butt and after a series of mishaps, marries the lady, and there's some other feckless boob stuff for along the way. Hey, that's, a, that, that's actually the title of my dissertation, everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> feckless boob goes somewhere. <laughs> colon. Yeah, colon. All the other stuff. Yeah. Somebody call your dissertation then and send it to us. We will only read the first page, but <laughs> sounds cool. So the lady he marries is always the smartest and best lady who is also a princess, and she's a very pretty crier. No ugly criers <laughs> in these books. Just humid eyes and rosy cheeks. Mm -hmm. But even though this book is like very good and rather steamy in the usual like people putting their hands on each other's chests and breathing heavily and like she leans her head on his shoulder all the time, it is way too horny for Irish history. 
it has an inappropriate number of footnotes. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. <laughs> like they are show offy. We know we all wrote dissertations. Like show offy footnotes are very annoying. <laughs> yes. It's not even a foot. It's the whole damn leg. Yeah. It's the it whole, leg. whole damn leg. I, I will say, I mean, like, there is, like, a sort of political reason for this in that, like, she is actually trying to make what she takes to be a serious historical argument against this colonizing force that wants to say, like, you don't have any history. But I agree. They are fucking annoyed. And there's, like, 50 million of them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you put it in the footnote, you're going to assume that I will almost certainly skip it. Let's be fair. And then but, also, it's like, Sir Henry of of McFiddle Faddle says that this ancient rite is actually comes from this place. And I'm like, oh, shut up, Lady Morgan, you <laughs> income poop. Although I do hope you read the footnote about the man with the two heads, which is- I amazing. did, actually. <laughs> and the one about the guy who just shoves another guy off a cliff or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some fucked up shit in this. Yeah, I read that one too. Yeah. The most fucked up one was C. Iliad. And I just wrote, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, me, me too. <laughs> there, I mean, that's what I was going to complain about next, which is that like, there's so much French in this book, and there are all these references to classical thought a lot. And I have had enough Plato to last me for my whole ass lifetime, which is like not even very much, but it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much more into the stuff where we talk about like it's not called the Maypole; it's like a May Bush or whatever. And other Irish interests. So I hope we get into some more of this pagan ritual wicker man stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Although I will say that like Owenson really wants to be like, oh, but that stuff, the pagan stuff, that's actually Greek or Egyptian or Phoenician yeah. or this other classical place that the Irish are supposed to have come from. <laughs> but I don't like that's she, that's a fine opinion, but I see no need to rehabilitate it except as just like pagan shit. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. There is a distinct place in this novel where it becomes my big fat Greek wedding. Like it's oh, yeah. all like that's just all we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you we like we like harps like the Greeks. We like wearing elaborate cloaks just like the Greeks. Uh we like potatoes like the Greeks. Oh, it doesn't matter that's a new world vegetable. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no. Are we in Athens? <laughs> we wear all kinds of crazy stuff just like the Greeks. Yeah. Nothing about butts, that's too bad. Aww. Or not at least not enough. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm gonna talk about some of that. So. The, the butts. About there's how not enough butts? No, how there's there's some there's some very corny, you know, like, oh look at these look at these these boat rowers. They look like fucking uh, Achilles and Hercules. You know, oh but. yeah, right. <laughs> anyway. And they don't have hats. Why aren't they Vikings anyway? Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> too, too pagan. Um sorry, Katie. Why did you want to read wait, you've read it. Why did you want to reread it? Because once you've read it, all you want to do is reread it. Am I right? I mean, I, I like loved it. I'm not sure I'll be rereading it immediately, but yeah, I, mean, I did love it. I mean, this is my third or fourth time rereading. So if you're me, yeah, you know, but, uh. I it stands up the second time. It's got the worst guy. He's a fucking fail lord who's such a <laughs> who's such a fail lord that his own dad opens the novel by telling us all what a fail lord he is. And um yep, yep. I hate both of my large sons. 
<laughs> yep. But can I interest you in a large father? Because our protagonist is very interested in fathers. I He is a got a sister t-shirt guy, but got a father because he loves yeah. fathers. He's father-based sexuality. It's just wonderful. He's also like a teenage nightmare, but an adult. <laughs> All yes, he is. Yeah. All he does, he's like, it's just like he's home for spring break. All he does is bitch about how boring everybody is uh, and everything is. And he doesn't like the scenery. And then when he's not doing that, he's like fainting and crying and mangling himself in self-inflicted <laughs> peeping Tom accidents. Uh-huh. Yeah. But as Megan said, I did read it for class. And luckily, my mind, the human mind is incredible. To protect itself, it will sometimes blot out certain things. <laughs> and so so I was like a new newborn babe rereading this. I do have one complaint, though, that I hope I can address to the complaints department. Is it about the Greeks? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, in a manner of speaking. It's all about the Greeks. No, it's like, okay, you give me a novel and you call it The Wild Irish Girl. And then it's all about dads. Yeah. Why didn't you call it The Wild Irish Dad? Boom. Yeah. Because um, this guy is so obsessed with dads. He loves his dad, his girlfriend's dad, other random dads that he <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he is. Right. And no. a priest uh, because he is called father. No, I mean, because usually the, the father sexuality in novels uh, of this era is is driven by like the absent father or something like that. But he actually likes his dad. I mean, he's, he's a little bit like, oh, my dad's so much better than me and I'm such a disappointment. So there's that, you know, but he, he actually thinks his, he's, his dad is, is great, but he also likes his other Irish dad and then this priest Irish dad. Mm-hmm. But it's not like daddy at all. It's just like, hold me in your arms, father, so I can feel loved finally. <laughs> Yeah, I need yeah. so many dads. Yeah. Yeah, he has a he's he's so uh disappointed his daddy has a neck tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is that the best the the just the best the some of the things I love the most were that he is constantly passing out in his future father-in-law's arms <laughs> and like requesting that he put baby powder on his sweet little bum. Um <laughs> and this is an old ass man who is for sure definitely dying. And he's so dying that before we even meet him, all we know is that he's dying. Mm-hmm. And then this dipshit falls from a great height onto him. And I cannot stress this enough. This guy is so fucking old. He's about to be sent to the farm upstate. where so he can run and play with all the other dads. Um <laughs> There are just so many things that I am excited to talk about, but I just want to say two other things that rip about this guy just to kind of get all our juices flowing. So he mopes off to Ireland and he writes a letter to his friend that says, my only entertainment on this sad journey shall be a thermometer, but I don't have a thermometer. Could you spot me yours? (laughs) Yep. And um, the primal scene for this guy is imagining casually nude Irish people around a fire. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. He also he wants to take his chemistry set with him too to Ireland, but it's oh, like, right. oh, like, yeah, like he's, oh, 
oh, I love this guy. He's such a dipshit. He also imagines his girlfriend reading shit, and that's like her hubba hubba moment. Yeah, well, right. I, I again, I feel like you know, listeners who don't know that Sydney Owens might be like, "Well, the Wild Irish Girl." This sounds pretty horny. It's like it's very horny, but not in the way you think. Her wildness <laughs> basically consists of she likes to play the harp and read things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> she reads she reads good also she speaks two languages at least probably yeah. like three because she speaks greek Ooh, yeah. real wild <laughs> she too loves her dad by the way yeah she does and the priest so today we are going to be talking about the nation and it, the book's political vision of ireland and the uk we're talking about masculinity and we're talking about language polylinguistic and European cultural hegemony. So, Tristan, give us a summary. Don't start with the end, even though <laughs> it is so good. I read this whole book, and in the last 20 pages, I was like, what in the fuck did I just read? <laughs> It it really uh, it really goes uh, goes goes off on one at the end. I, I, yeah. So anyway, but we'll get there. We'll get there. We've got some other stuff to talk about first. So, with that being said, let's let's meet our English hero of the tale, Horatio, second son of the Earl of M. Very mysterious. Doesn't give us just a letter, not the the name. And as we've all said, just a staggering fail son. <laughs> like perhaps the failiest of fail sons we have yet encountered on Better Red Than Dead. And there is stiff competition for that wow. type. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, if you've listened to our Rob Roy episode, which I encourage you to do, one, it, it pairs nicely with this one. Just imagine Frank Osbaldistone, but like 50 times whinier and somehow 150 times less competent. Like I'm going to mention as an example of this is that like Frank actually like gets mad guys and punches somebody and Horatio just sees a hot guy and he's like for some reason I wanted to punch him but he doesn't yeah, yes he yeah. punches himself instead yeah yeah he is a prototypical hold me back bro except he holds himself back uh, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> to me he's always covered in crumbs just because he doesn't <laughs> yeah know what's yeah. going on and think and like you know a true success boy is one who keeps falling out of trees yeah, yeah, and leaning out of windows after he's already fallen up from a great height yeah i mean true dipshit hall of fame stuff um anyway so we open with this series of letters and novel is mostly epistolary although not the last 20 pages which is weird maybe we'll talk about that between horatio and his dad where we learned that daddy is super pissed at what a fuck up his son is Horatio has been partied so hard that he's run out of money and these people are super rich. So that's kind of impressive. He's landed in debtor's prison and managed to have an affair or intrigue of some kind with a married aristocrat woman. Now, this is extra bad uh, because, you know, since Horatio is only is, is only the second son, he's not going to inherit the mega fortune, which will go to his extremely boring dollar of an older brother. And and that's really all we know about his older brothers, that he's super boring, he's hard on and no one really likes him. Including um, the dad. <laughs> <laughs> the dad also does not like the big brother yeah no 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 the dad likes the fail son uh sort of but yeah so so da daddy the earl is like son you need to get studying the, the the law books and stop banging married ladies so that you can be a rich ass lawyer because your brother gets to be the rich ass do nothing nobleman and you know he's he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a caring dad and he wants to help horatio unfuck himself so dad sends him to his you know at the age of 25 or whatever sends him to his room and by that i mean something horatio thinks is much worse i Ireland. 
Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he sends him to Ireland because the family has this giant estate that they stole during Cromwell's wars of the 17th century. And I'm just going to give you a, a, a sampling of Horatio's early thoughts on Ireland. Had he banished me to the savage desolations of Siberia, my exile would have had some character. Had he even transported me to a South Sea island or thrown me into an Eskimo hut, my new species of being would have been touched with some interest. For, in fact, the present relaxed state of my intellectual system requires some, <laughs> some strong transition of place, circumstance, and manners to wind it up to its native tone, to rouse its energy, or awake it to a, a exertion. But sent to a country against which I have a decided prejudice, which I suppose semi-barbarous, semi-civilized, has lost the strong and hearty features of savage life, without acquiring those graces which distinguish polished society, I neither participate in the poignant pleasure of a awakened curiosity and acquired information nor taste the least of those enjoyments which courted my acceptances in my native land like <laughs> god dad i'm bored i want to play the ps5 my brother gets to <laughs> oh, for real uh, and I, I so i wanted to quote that because i actually okay so like that does give us some window into like how what owen basically what owenson wants us to understand about what she's casting as a common aristocratic or you know upper bourgeoisie view of ireland which is that it's like it's this weird space between like it's familiar and yet other quote-unquote savage and yet not you know so it's like it, not it's this unsavage not like the south seas or whatever yes. it's just where you get grounded to yeah it's right rainy, it's rainy and full of redheads Right. And I think one thing that she's trying to say here is that, like, there's a presumed sort of familiarity about the place, but ultimately she's also trying to say that the English don't actually know it um, and and just sort of, like, graft a lot – basically a lot of this kind of catch bag of, like, negative associations. But anyway, out of Horatio's mouth, it is just – I mean, even more ridiculous than it would be otherwise, I think. So, okay. Well, but here – there's good news. So Horatio is Bill the Butcher uh, <laughs> for, you know, the Gags of New York, uh, 19th century anti-Irish bigot act uh, ends as soon as he crosses the Irish Sea. Like, he's not even out of the boat yet. So, for one thing, he thinks the Bay of Dublin is super pretty, and holy shit, are the boatmen rowing him ashore swole. I, I would give you a little bit more of Horatio's uh, oh, thoughts yes, on that. Uh, the, yes, the oars of which were plied by six men whose statures, limbs, and features declared them the lingering progeny of the once formidable race of Irish giants. Bareheaded, they bided the pelting of the pitiless store with no other barrier to its fury than what tattered check trousers and shirts open at the neck, hubba hubba, and touch <laughs> above the elbows afforded, and which thus disposed betrayed the sinewy contexture of forms which might have individually afforded a model to sculpture for the colossal statue of a Hercules under all uh, different aspects of strength and exertion. So awesome. Ireland, super horny place, and our boy fucks, or he likes to think that he does, and so things are finally looking up. <laughs> <laughs> what if one of those big guys hugs me too tight? Yeah, 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 exactly. Break all the, all the bones that he hasn't already broken in his mishaps. <laughs> yeah, right. But we're not here to eat. Yeah, eat. <laughs> <laughs> are we? We're not here to meet hot Irish boatmen in this novel. We're here to meet a hot Irish princess. So let's follow Horatio to the West Country or, or the province of Connaught, uh, where his dad has his asshole absentee colonialist estate. Horatio learns some things along the way. Uh, the Irish peasantry are, are very poor. There's this one amazing scene where he just walks right into this one house. They've got like a toddler and the family's oh pig, which is, you know, very valuable thing. I mean, these are extremely poor people. And he just like lets it out, lets them both out and proclaims, 
this, uh, yeah, right. This miserable asylum of human wretchedness, like the house of an Irish. God. <laughs> but oh shit, the Irish are also tenderly alive to the finest feelings of humanity, patiently laboring with daily exertion for what can scarce afford a bare subsistence. Like who knew, right? <laughs> After I have liberated their toddler, they They were so nice to me. So, hey, if something else he finds out, bear with me here. Irish poverty is like the result of British colonial policy. Damn. Particularly the absentee landlord system that his dad does. Yeah, it's this really sort of abusive and kind of pernicious system where like so farms, big farms are rented out in smaller and smaller units uh, with with the best land reserved for large scale livestock agriculture, which profits only the British or like the Anglo Irish elite. This is actually why the potato became such an important crop, because you can grow a ton of like calories in a very small plot of land that you don't need a ton of arable land to do it. it it's directly the result of this particular bad landlord system so, so yeah somebody on twitter now is like well actually like it's a noblesse oblige and they're really taking care of them <laughs> yeah right exactly exactly well the weird thing is that like that is what his dad seems to think he's doing but it's very clear that no this is exactly the system that his dad is yeah. to that end and Teresa's like oh man i'm so sad now uh he finds out his dad uh, is employing this particularly nefarious uh manager an english guy named mr clendenning who does all your typical bad landlord shit not that there's any other kind of landlord like outrageous rents and evic- evicting people left and right all of that shit and yeah like all of this man it's such a fucking bummer it harshes ratios mellow and like the law books he's both and they're fucking boring so he's like i'm gonna do some sightseeing and so he rides out along the atlantic coast um he learns that his his family's irish land uh was taken from this one particular noble family the princes of innismore or uh, Get more colloquially known as the O'Melvilles. Uh, I don't know if it relation to her oh, or right. not. <laughs> but, uh, as I said, it was that was they were seized during Cromwell's wars in the 17th century uh, from from the Innismore family. And oh wow, the current prince is still living, and just for some reason hates Horatio's dad. Like what the fuck, right? Even though his dad is totally trying to make it all up to him, but he hears you know they live in this spooky castle on the on the Atlantic coast, and you know uh, he's got a super hot daughter. So Horatio's boner leads him to to the Gothic castle. It's like a compass. <laughs> it's like a compass. <laughs> Except he does get lost on the way, which is really funny. (laughs) He does get lost on the way, yes. Because he's he's doing adult coloring. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, his yes, his 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 pretend fail son career, non law career, is that he is an art artiste. So yeah, okay. So, so he rides out horsily like a guy on one of those shows with the the bad wigs where they have non sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So he gets he gets to the the, the Innismore's castle. Uh, it's nighttime, and whoa, man! He hears a harp playing and a lady singing. So yeah, time for a little George McFly peeping Tom action. He climbs the ramparts of the castle to get a better look. Nudge, nudge, if if you know what I mean. And he is very into what he sees: the white rising of her hands on the harp, the half drawn veil that imperfectly discovered the countenance of a seraph, the moonlight that played round her fine form and partially t- touched her drapery with its silver beam, her attitude, her air, but how cold, how inanimate, how imperfect this description. Oh, could I but seize the touching features? Could I but realize the vivid tints of this enchanting picture as they then glowed on my fancy by heavens? You would think the mimic copy fabulous, the celestial visitant of an overheated imagination. 
hot, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, a simple auga would have done. Yeah, yeah. My, tongue, my tongue did comically lull forth from my mouth, <laughs> <laughs> and the eyeballs pop out. Uh, so yeah, all right. Well, so yeah, he's up there hanging on the ramparts, and uh, then his dumbass just slips and falls and knocks himself the fuck out and breaks his wrist. Now, weirdly, the genius hours. <laughs> Total genius hours. And weirdly, the Ennis Moore family is not at all freaked out by this, but decides to nurse Horatio back to health and be his best friend. Like a baby bird. <laughs> and my Flew explanation. Into the window repeatedly. Yeah, the baby bird just keeps <laughs> banging itself into the window. And yeah, that's what they do. My explanation for why they're so like, oh, yes, you were you were trying to, you know, like <laughs> creep outside our window, like staring at my daughter here is um, they're isolated in this spooky as fuck castle. They have precisely one heart. Also, the castle is almost entirely in ruins. Like they just live in this one like eighty like tower part of it. Uh, they have like one harp and a bunch of boring Irish history books. And like these are just bored people, very bored people, you know. Now, Horatio wisely, for once, does not tell them who he is. He's not like, oh, hey, I, you hate my dad and you want to kill my family because we stole all this from you. But he makes up this story about how he's this traveling artist named Henry Mortimer. Uh, <laughs> it's you know, still a gem, right? Like very clever. And the prince decides it would be a fantastic idea to hire uh, Horatio or Henry to teach his daughter, Glorvina, how to draw. I mean, okay. <laughs> There's one thing about this that's so funny. His fake disguise, like his fake persona, has to account for both his horny peeping and conceal who he is and account for the art supplies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the only thing he does. Yeah. I know, it's amazing. It's so good. Um, also, I should just, because I, I didn't mention this in the context. So like, Cindy Owens, as part of like kind of marketing this book, was like, oh yes, I am Glorvina. So like, she would go, because she was, you know, she's Irish. Like, she would go to the, back, over to England and like, she would, she would like go to these like rich people's houses and like play the harp, like wearing the most oh, Irish. No. Yeah, like, you know, she totally played this character it was like, these people are such morons. They fucking eat it up. Like, so, as I said, she She's kind of awesome. Um, but yeah, and I mean, why shouldn't Glorvina learn how to draw better? She can already do everything else. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, literally. She, she. I mean, this is another common trope of this this figure. Again, like, for instance, uh, you know, the family priest, Father John, uh, he's taught her a ton of classical and modern European languages. As we already know, she plays the harp real hot. Uh, she, she, knows a ton, <laughs> she knows a ton about Irish and English and European history generally. You know, she's also mysterious enough to make Horatio even hornier while still being what Owenson going for the kind of full 18th uh, century romance heroine uh, describes as innocent, you know, so, which I, I think among other things, I mean, she's like 19, like, which is, that's, that's like, that is the, the age of, of the, the kind of heroine of these novels. Frequently. But she has to do all the like gazing out from underneath her eyelashes and blushing and just yes, like yes. running away, crying and all the nonsense. Yeah. Right. And, and yes, and anything that approaches on the actual erotic, it has to be like a blush and like a, a confusion and shit like that. Yeah. A lot of hands, a lot um, of hands, <laughs> a lot of hands. And you can see both of them for everyone. You see four hands, but they're all touching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ch- chastely yeah but but hey look uh horatio gets to hang out with with them so i guess his george mcfly routine worked um great <laughs> well he has uh, to teach her how to draw dongs for the rest of these 200 pages 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of what happens. Uh, you know, it would have been more useful, actually. Yeah, not much does happen for the next, like, at least 150 pages. Horatio and Glorvina get progressively hotter for each other. Father John, who it's important to know, is not like other Catholics. Uh, <laughs> like, true. <laughs> Uh, he becomes like BFFs with Horatio. You know, they have good natured disputes over which one of them is a heretic damned to hell. And, you know, and, and, and Horatio learns a lot about how Scotland and Wales suck because Ireland is the OG Celtic country. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Horatio, as Katie noted, loves the prince who becomes this surrogate father figure. Uh, and I, in this case, I think Horatio enjoys how he does old timey Irish things like having a mustache <laughs> and wearing medieval time style clothes around. <laughs> well, he's also found a guy as dumb as him because he, because he Horatio crashes onto him and he's like, "You seem like the type of guy who should educate my daughter." <laughs> biggest ding dong I've ever met. Guys falling from the sky to teach my daughter art. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. It's like, oh my god! It's all, I thought you needed to teach you how to draw. Pretty this this guy just <laughs> this guy fell, out fell out of the air. I literally fell into my lap. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and we know the Ir- that the Irish are better at being Celts because, and I know you'll talk about this because we get phonetic Scots <laughs> accents yes. just to show what dickholes they are yes exactly whereas yeah we do we we I, mean, I think we get a little bit of that when we're talking to like well like a peasant but but it's not it's not nearly as marked as like when it's a scottish person and it's like the, broad it's not as broad and at the at the irish aristocrat level like the edison yeah, course there's no there's no accent at all although it says it's like they they speak english as though they were translated directly from irish so yeah whatever, whatever. the fuck that means <laughs> like i think just that they speak they speak very like emotively so yeah, uh, so a, a lot of this section is devoted to Horatio learning Irish history, language, you know, how much they like bards, uh, you know, and he gets this from both the, from the Prince Glorvina and Father John. Um, and, and Owenson you mentioned this earlier, like, there are these, t- these really kind of annoying voluminous footnotes, like, Owenson's really trying to support the sort of historical claims that the characters are making by being like, no, this is real shit. You, you goddamn English people need to take this seriously. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you want somebody to take something seriously, you put it in a footnote. That's oh, yeah. what a way to go. The, the, well, the quality does vary because some of it, some of the footnotes are like, this song is nice and people like it. And the yeah. others are like three pages long and from the people's history of tromping around bogs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, yeah, like, and honestly, I think some of the most interesting claims we get here is when Owenson like does sort of very conspicuously try to tell the story of English uh, and British colonialism in Ireland via reference to the colonization of the Americas um, and, and other kind of fear that that like as part of British imperial discourse were recognized as like, oh, this act, this was like really brutal, like what the Spanish did or, or things like that. And like so there's this one moment where Horatio challenges Father John as to like why there aren't more written records of the ancient Irish history that they were counting that are available. And Father John replies, manuscripts annals and records are not the treasures of a colonized or a conquered country. It is always the policy of the conqueror or the invader to destroy those mementi of ancient national splendor, which keep alive the spirit of the conquered or the invaded, which is like, that's 
true i mean that's and like you know i particularly like with the conquest of mexico like i mean there were times i think that like the cortez destroyed tons and tons of like mayan codexes and things like that i believe right well i mean i would sort of say that it's the the policy of the conqueror to try to destroy those memento because they're always there's always stuff that survives it just tends to be like minor archives and manuscripts and this is like my dissertation now that you're out that of course yes absolutely but that it's like an incomplete undertaking yeah oh no absolutely again i i I didn't mean to suggest otherwise but just that like that 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 attempting to do that is is very much a strategy of 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 colonialism of empire for sure yeah 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 i mean it's such an interest i've like very much bookmarked this moment of like manuscripts as the sort of like colonial checkpoint yeah right and 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 yeah and also just like it just you know a claim that like okay so understand what's happened with ireland in reference to like what happened in the americas or like what you know it's just yeah it's 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 a very kind of conspicuous moment and and also i mean i don't like i don't want to just accept that claim as like unproblematic but it's like it it is it's definitely like kind of invoking the history of empire as a way of saying like hey like let's 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 pay attention to this shit yeah so uh, and then okay on on a trip up to ulster we learned that the northern irish are fake irish and actually scots we this here the the cade milafalcha of irish cordiality seldom lends its welcome home to the stranger's heart uh, okay um and, and the book the book thinks the scots irish are too capitalist too so you know okay all right they don't <laughs> like it when when i fall on them <laughs> they're too into money not enough into singing you know but um they talk like people in an Irvin welsh novel <laughs> no one's hauling any dogs around in wheelbarrows or whatever the fuck yeah that's right oh god um okay so how do we wrap this shit up well oh man glorvita turns out already to engage to this other old dude who mysteriously pays off the prince's debt but what that other dude was actually horatio's dad the earl of ebb the parent trap the parent <laughs> trap yeah see the well earl- he was wearing a mask the whole time so it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit of a scooby-doo here too <laughs> <laughs> so- See, the Earl was so sad the prince wouldn't be his friend, he also cod his way into the castle under an alias and thought, the only way I could write this historic wrong is by banging this Irish gentleman's daughter. And Hor- he really is his father's son. <laughs> <laughs> so Horatio discovers this when he busts into their secret wedding ceremony. The prince, who is quite ill, promptly dies. Glorvina screams, which of you murdered my father? But she gets this. This is shock, like killed him or whatever. But he was, yeah, he was on death's door. She quit. <laughs> they're all lining up to surprise a dying guy. <laughs> she- but this is where also like everybody faints all over each other, mm-hmm. and then they like manage to slap Glorvino awake, and she's like, "No, I gotta faint again." <laughs> I mean, I would look. I would too. I mean, this sounds yeah. Get, get me. You're stuck get with me. these two. The apple doesn't fall <laughs> far out of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but, hey, you know, it's a happy story. She gets over it quickly. Uh, <laughs> Papa Earl is not mad at all and says, you two get married instead. That's fine. Uh, very generous of him. Uh, they do. And in his final letter, the Earl pronounces that they have fixed single-handedly or double-handedly, whatever the fuck, uh, the, prob- <laughs> the problem of Ireland's colonial occupation because he's going to make sure Horatio lives at least eight months of the year at the Connaught Estate. The end. Excellent. <laughs> 
I like how he's just like, my son is an infant and I still get to tell him where he lives, even though he's 20 years old. <laughs> exactly. And for how long, I get to specify how long he lives where, because uh, my adult son. Can't. Well, he has to live two, he has to live two thirds of the year. Uh, imagine the years of the year. Three fourths of the year, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he has uh, to live enough of it and it there just to make it all work. Yeah, just eight months, and yeah, then he can get. Well, he doesn't like England anymore, so I'm not sure where he would go because Ireland has captured his heart along with the princess. I just want to say, I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in a little bit, but I did like. Okay, the ending is ridiculous and hella goofy, and I actually think that like there is a sort of like more overtly kind of anti british colonialist line here in that like so a lot there's there's a lot of novels that this is often compared to that does sort of want to resolve the 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 problem of kind of british irish strife in this marriage between usually a british or anglo-irish man and an irish or celtic woman but i think that like the ridiculousness of this novel's ending sort of very self-consciously draws attention to like are we sure this is going to work? And so like she gives us the form of how this is supposed to work out, but also raises enough questions and makes it, you know, mockable enough that we're like, oh, wait, actually, I'm not sure that this can fucking work. I'll talk a little bit more about this in the context. But like, I think that there is a more like subtly kind of Republican message that is coded within this than might be apparent from on the surface. Well, he's oh. such an obvious pointless dipshit yes this is literally sending jared kushner to solve peace in the middle east yes (laughs) yes it is yeah yeah, yeah. exactly and we should know like never does the prince say oh yeah this is fine he died he's just like what you're the son of my like are you you're my enemy and then he's dead you know so it's like he so the the the, they just they swing their two fail son like dad and son fail son dicks all over the place and there's no moment of reconciliation with like the supplanted like patriarchal power structure you know what i mean so because that for the first like i don't know third of the novel i was like oh shit when's he gonna get found out and then you get further along and you're like i don't think that matters anymore yeah 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 exactly no it it, does well i thought that was the tension and then it was like oh no this is just like a device to get us into the problem of like the colonial state i mean not the colonial state but like the colonial estate i guess yeah plus everyone's doing it like everyone's (laughs) i I think i think that it, it that it will work i think that this was a success because they found the worst guy they yeah. sent the worst guy they did yeah, they did they did for real although but. i still kind of feel like the prince being like you know this <laughs> rando who fell out of the sky would make a great art teacher <laughs> yeah uh-huh. i know um, oh it's so good though but give us the context because i gotta know sure. some more about this so yeah i just a little bit on sort of scholarship on and theory of the nation definitely always scare quotes around that term that drives a lot of the conversation on Owenson and this national tale genre she's operating in. And I'll also say just a brief bit about the immediate historical context of Owenson herself. So there was a ton of research in this area in the 1980s and 1990s, like uh, Katie Trumpener, a very famous literary study, Bardic Nationalism, Linda Colley's Landmark History, Britons, which is really a great history, uh, among a few others. And like there was a time when this was the question in romanticist historicism like how does the nation factor into these works and i think that that conversation was driven by a couple currents one was just kind of scholarship and and writing and conversation with and departing from benedict anderson's famous uh book from the early 1980s called imagined communities 
which looked at the origins of the nation form as, and this is kind of against nationalism's internal claims about antiquity and essentiality. Anderson argued this is very much the product of modernity. And so for Anderson, the nation is an imagined form that tries to produce coherence around why some biggish group of people, often existing across um, you know, a ton of lines pertaining to location, community, class, sometimes race and ethnicity, um, and other factors could think of or were barred from thinking of themselves as Indian or Indonesian or Nigerian or British uh, or American or, you know, and, and it really, you know, a, a, a kind of global phenomenon with but, but very different sort of like implications and valences at different places and times. So there are a lot, there are a number of factors that Anderson thinks drives this. Like one is uh, technological, like mass communication. So like the nation depends on people who don't live in the same village, town or city being able to read the same news nonetheless and be subject to the same national discourse and narrative. And Anderson also claims that this nation form arises in reaction to both the sort of gigantic 18th and 19th century European empires, which aim to span continents, and to older, much more geographically contained communities. So like the people who live in your village or like your manor, or like your kind of small farming community and things like that. And that's in conversation with the Raymond Williams claims in the country and the city, right? Where he's like, we have this fake idea that capital begins in the city, which is like a non-supportable idea. So the sort of like older, more geographically, I don't know, like hyper-localized places are not outside of the modern. No, not at all. No, they, yeah, absolutely. No, Raymond, this is very much uh, kind of part of the same sort of discourse that people like, like Raymond Williams, and I think Stuart Hall too, to some extent, right? Like, uh, yeah, that, that there's, yeah, there, there, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, which also, and that, that actually, that that raises the kind of next discourse around this that I, I wanted to talk about. So beyond Anderson, uh, I think post-colonialism had a ton to do with why this question was felt to be so interesting at that time. You know, like developing fuller accounts of the intersection between anti-colonial colonialism and various nationalisms. Well, the UK is a weird construction of that conversation for a few reasons. One, it's the metropole. It's not the colony, or at least part of it's not the colony, um, which raises point two. Its own nationality is so fraught. Like So in our Rob Roy episode and a, a few other shows, we talked about how Britishness was created as this form meant to span English, Welsh, Scottish, and particularly in the 19th century Irish identities. But at the same time, the invention of a coherent sense of Scottishness or Irishness or Welshness was being produced as national precisely as a counterclaim or point of resistance to Britishness and to some extent to imperialism more broadly. All right. Sorry. Finally, just a little bit about Owenson because she's pretty cool. Um, like, yeah. So this novel, I think, is going to look reactionary in a lot of ways to modern readers. But it was perceived as very radical in its day. So Owenson was Irish. Uh, her dad was this Irish Catholic actor. Her mom was Protestant English. And she was much more into her dad's side of the family. Like her political oh, sympathy. Oh, whoa. Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. I know. Like, right. We could never get that from this narrative. Uh her political sympathies were very Jacobin during the French Revolution. Um Little and when she writes Jack. Yeah, a guy <laughs> named Jack. Right. I mean, well, if we're talking Jack and Bites on the other side of the spectrum, it actually was a guy named Jack. But, uh, but so when she uh, writes The Wild Irish Girl, like this was right in the wake of the 19, sorry, the 1798 United Irishmen's Revolt and also the 1800 Act of Union, which had formally made Ireland part of the UK um, and also abolished the Irish Parliament. 
Um, it's decades before Catholic emancipation. It's in the middle of a broader reactionary crackdown on radical thought that happened in Britain during the Napoleonic Wars. And like a lot of publishers were kind of afraid to touch this novel because they thought it was seditious. So that's the cool side. On the flip side, and Catherine Kirkpatrick gets into this in her Oxford introduction, the nationalist essentialism here is hella reactionary and gross. And Owenson has been criticized that uh, about that for a couple of centuries. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> Still under. Yeah. 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 She's cool. She so, wrote a real funny book. She wrote a really, really fun book. And it has orbs. It has three orbs. She rules. It does have three orbs, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so where are we going? We're talking about the nation. I sort of have my own take on this, although I just I find this novel so sort of ambivalent and weird. Historically, like Owenson is a Republican. I mean, she's not she's not a like, oh, the U like the UK could be made to work. Like she actually does is like, yeah, no, with this Ireland should be an independent country. But where do we think the political vision expressed in this novel is? Like I already said, like my sense is like it troubles the possibility of this kind of like romantic resolution in this sort of like marriage, like the, the marriage between the characters signifying the marriage between the countries. But I guess I'm just kind of curious what your guys read on, on that is, or what you felt like the politic of it <laughs> was by the end of it. Yeah, no, I think that the take is ultimately comic that this would work. Like, okay, so there's a part where Horatio takes medicine, closes his eyes, and sank onto the bosom of Glorvina's father, and then she yells, oh, he faints again. And, <laughs> and like, he says shit like, they thought I was a historical guy known for sleeping all the time, because I was always either sleeping or fake sleeping. <laughs> That to me was an outright, and he's like always falling and leaning out of shit. Like he's unstable in a way that has no consequences, which yeah. to me, which to me is like that's why I know this isn't this wasn't a good idea. That maybe she doesn't even think this is a good idea. Yeah, because you'd never make this your guy. Yeah, and like, right, like his his fail suddenness is never redeemed. Like I mean, I feel like. If we were meant to take seriously that ending, we would have to see him do so. Like, there would be some, like, really boring shit that he's like, the way we've subdivided these properties, that doesn't work. We need to make sure that each peasant has much more land available. You know, like, he would, he would, he would have had to learn how to be like the man. And believe me, there are novels where exactly what I'm saying <laughs> is what happens. And it doesn't. He's still a fuck off, like, fading all the time at the marriage. Like, other than his dad being like, now you better live there eight months of a year year we just don't get any stability to hang our hat on it like ah yes now we have a good version of like the the english overlord you know and like son you may have her is not the yeah yeah i mean i i i just like rest on the fact that like he's such a pointless dipshit but you also sort of like you have to send your second son so there's no risk of his actually being a sort of like threatening lord he's yeah. not gonna rearrange the political yeah. He's not going to make this like a stability wherein he's a good colon. I don't mean a good colonizer morally, but he's like good at it. This guy doesn't even get out of bed. <laughs> exactly. No, but yeah, actually, Megan, you know, like weirdly, I had not thought of the second son thing like at, at the ending. 
until you just said that like yeah like if it was the guy if it was the fucking dumbass who's going to inherit the title right and like the british peerage actually coming back to like live there it would have a very different character than this guy who can be kind of like bougie or something right that like but but i also don't like he doesn't have the capacity to be bougie because he can't do you know what i mean like he He can't can't, do anything he's not gonna land there and be like good at shit no, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, and he's not going to be a guy. Like, he's not going to be a fancy guy, like yeah. his older, non existent brother. Yeah. <laughs> he has to say, mother, Father, may I, to everything. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the guy who has the power to do stuff. Right. Even if he wanted to. Yeah, right. Like, it's okay. Yes. <laughs> so. He's too obsessed with like, daddy, did I do a good job for him to like take the reins and be like, colony daddy. Yeah. Bored now. Bored now. Horny and bored. Bored and horny. <laughs> Let me bored. draw stuff. That'll be interesting. This is my kind of point, right? That what Owenson shows us is like, okay, so you like this resolution. Okay. This political settlement depends on this utterly incompetent and unreliable jackass remaining horny for the irish woman or you know that is a hell of a fragile thing to hang any sort of like uh, functioning and like you know not oppressed society on right i think that the novel very much knows that like i don't think that is me or or you guys like you know get like being like oh yeah but like what's let's actually interrogate this it's like no i think we're very much meant to interrogate this because of it's precisely because of its sort of ridiculousness and and yeah like kind of at least quasi comic but i think yeah comic is the way to think of it for sure well why would it be so funny if owenson didn't want us to think of him as like such a colossal ding dong yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. she like that's transparent in this there's like no other way to look at it there's another part where he takes a letter or she she takes this letter out of her bosom that's from (laughs) his dad but he doesn't know that and um he's writing a letter to his friend about it and he said she took the letter out of her bosom in parentheses. Yes, her bosom. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> he also, yeah. like, he does three exclamation points routinely like a 17-year-old writing yeah. in her journal. It's sort of worth noting that he, the letters, like the epistolary form or whatever, like, we don't get replies except for a couple from the dad. So, it's like, yeah. he's not even in conversation. Like, his conversations aren't even relevant enough to... Yeah. print like he's not connected yeah, yeah right we don't even true. know who the guy is who he's sending shit to do we? i mean we know who he is but we don't know anything about him yeah you know he's got a fahrenheit yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, his his uh, who uh, to JD Esquire member? Oh, MP. So he's a member of Parliament, right? But yeah, so he's just, he's just some other rich and a fuck lawyer. Off. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's, he's a lawyer. Some men. other rich <laughs> fuck off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, well, so actually, can we talk about like masculinity in this a little bit? Oh, let's do because who is our who's who is our butch? Right. The old dying dad, of course. Yeah, yeah. of course. He's but, dying, but sexily. Yeah, well, right. I mean, so like, yeah, the book, but he's like, he's he's always already died, right? Like, we meet him in a state yes. of decay and enervation, right? But like, he also get he gets national energy. Yeah, no, he right. Yeah, and I mean, and and as such, like, the, yeah, the the kind of decay of the sort of national form. Yeah, it's. I mean, like, I 
I think we're supposed to find him an intriguing character. Like I, I, I think we're sort supposed to see the prince as you know, like kind of a good guy or you know, like good, good hearted or whatever. But I mean, I also think there is a palpable and intentional ridiculousness about him as well, right? I mean. Ooh, the Prince of Ennismore. He lives on this tiny peninsula because that he won't leave because like what what is across the like little causeway is this land that he's lost. His, you know, castle, quote unquote, is completely in ruins. Like, what is he the prince of? You know, you know what I mean? Like <sighs> he's um, the prince of having a daughter. Yeah. That's true. He is the prince of having a daughter. Yeah. So when Horatio meets everybody, he's first taken most with the dad because he's he has concerns about what Glorvina looks like. And at first, he's really into like guys night. Like he loves to hang out with the he likes to talk to the dad. He likes to talk to the priest. And then about three quarters of the way through the novel, he gets bored with all the guy stuff. Yeah. Like he's like, I'm not listening. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't give a shit. I just want to think about my heart playing, sweetie. <laughs> yeah right because his investment is not very deep if that may, like horatio's right because he's only he's only invested in like getting his d wet y- yeah yes he yeah. doesn't need to be like let's go do some empire like that doesn't seem to be what's going on for me no and well and, yeah right getting his d wet and also trying to just like fucking cosplay right like he likes the prince because he i was like what i said i said it like dismissively but like i think it's you were supposed to dismiss it he likes the prince because he has a fucking mustache he wears a cloak and like he's you know he talks english funny right like so there's this one uh the the print like at, at this moment where like one of a few moments where horatio fucks off that i kind of skipped over the summary like he, you know he leaves and says i'm never coming back very you know mysteriously widely and uh the prince gives him a letter and in it is like a banknote and the golden ring that he he always wore and oh my god and, and horatio's like he returns the bag he's like i cannot take your money but your ring i will always treasure and it's like right because he wants to like cosplay as being yeah. this ancient irish prince you know like and- he wants to do it as like the ancient for like woo reasons not for empire reasons at least to me he wants to do it because he has this like fantasy it's you know he's doing like he's doing spring break in indonesia right so he's like this is the authentic or whatever he is horny about the situation Mm -hmm. he's crashing with them like he's like thanks for letting me sleep on your couch i guess i'll ride away (laughs) on my horse now yeah yeah Yeah, thanks for the ring right so i mean one of the many ways in which horatio is like a dipshit is that like he thinks that he can just sort of like yeah like effectively cosplay this role without registering it's like okay you are the son of the guy who owns this land precisely because of like these older kind of colonial wars you just barge your way and like push push the old like the old patriarch out of the way at the end how do you think that you can just inhabit that in this woo woo the romance of it sense and not in the like very actively like kind of the the imposition of a political order sense and i don't think you can and horatio thinks you can and the novel knows you can and that is like yet another way in which not only is he a dipshit, but this whole like trying to resolve this question around this new form of patriarchy, I think, again, something the novel wants us to be quite skeptical of. Yes. So it's significant to me that you we don't actually get the marriage. Gloravina just fucks off, too. Yeah. She's out of the picture. We don't even see them smooch. No, no, no. no, no. She, 
yeah like her 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 yeah when and i know like when we were talking about this before uh the show katie you mentioned like the epistolarity is weird because it just the last 20 pages it drops and we get this instead third person narration um that's just sort of telling. it's so hard for me to sort of understand that well i was like is this a different guy like who yeah yeah I mean, I don't think that that move is explainable other than the novel calling attention to its own sort of like narrative form, right? And it's like, it, yeah, so it's like we ha- get the we get the goofy end of Horatio's letters and then it's like, oh, you want a nice tidy resolution? Well, here am I, omniscient narrator, to give it to you. Do you see how stupid it is? <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, uh, right. Oh, if this actually works out the way that the book is pushing you toward, it turns out to be like quite stupid. I mean, Horatio. I don't mean the book is stupid. I mean that the ending is deliberately stupid. Yes, and and I think Horatio is such a hapless dumb fuck that how could his voice produce the kind of like resolution that this thing demands? Right? It's almost like oh, it's insane. Like there is no way for this to wrap up unless I'm just like, all right, guys, here's all right. This is what fucking happened. The dad was going to marry her, but instead the son does. Are you fucking happy? Here you go. (laughs) Yeah. But like we don't even get any more sons. No. I like. I thought we yeah. were going to get some more sons. That's the way it would end if we were ending something that wasn't this. Well, and also like okay, the you know there's another sort of gendered aspect here too, right? Which is it's the the woman author, the female voice of the novelist, is the one that ultimately comes in to produce the order that the voice of the 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 hero, the the, the kind of masculinist voice, can't actually sustain. It doesn't know how to resolve, you know. Because the voice of the hero is the voice of a kid in the back of a fucking minivan asking <laughs> if he can have a snack and yeah. when can we pull over? I have to pee. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's not – there's no way that he could be taken for a commanding narr- – he's not even a commanding narrator, let alone a commanding like Earl of the fake falling apart manor or whatever. Like that seems silly too that that's like – it's not a very good thing he's gonna go. No, he's so irrelevant. He doesn't even have to learn a lesson from anything. No, no, no. Yeah. That is seriously, this guy fucking falls from a great height and yeah. then I, I can't stress this enough, leans far out a window and gets a tree climbs a tree to get a branch. Yeah. I mean, you see him not yeah. learning. She's like, that looks cute. And he's like, I'm going to go get it. This is going to be some three apples, three golden apple shit. And it's like, no, it's not. I picked this twig out for you. (laughs) (laughs) It was the one you said you liked. Yes. (gasps) What a dummy. Well, yeah. No, and it is just so striking to think of it. Like, right. Okay. So a novelist that Owenson is often put into conversation with, Mariah Edgeworth, who is very much, much more kind of conservative than Owenson. Like Edgeworth was uh, kind of part, you know, a daughter of the Anglo-Irish elite. Uh, You know, she's critical of British colonial policy in Ireland, but it was very much a project of, oh, but only if we could teach the absentee class to like actually love this land and, and do and care for it dutifully. And like Edgeworth's novels do resolve around like, we have a dumbass like Horatio, but he fucking learned something. He learns how to like step into that seat and be a bene- you know a beneficent sort of overlord. And Owenson just does not give us that at all. You know, <laughs> like it's- no, because we can't resolve it in a way that's like I guess let's sustain the fiction of like the colonial era. Yeah. Exactly. It, it is remarkable how the same dipshit from the beginning is the one that appears at the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like he, he has learned nothing. You're absolutely right. Yeah, 
Um, he could meet himself as a time traveler with no danger because there's no information. <laughs> it's true. He could. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he really does get a, the George McFly treatment. well he's degraded too that's the thing the dad is doing he's we get farther away from the evil shit and farther away from doing anything then yeah oh yeah so actually so wait take out is there like one more thing to talk about um this get like your your question about languages right like and 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 i think also opens up the question of like how the novel wants us to understand irish history because i because i do think like we're sort of on a, 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 you know, from a left, you know, a, le- a left wing perspective, pretty positive version of which this is doing, which is kind of, you know, cr- critiquing like patriarchalist colonial hegemony. But I also think there is really shitty strains of nationalism here that we should probably acknowledge and like the directions yeah. that that can, can go in. And, and I actually did think, you know, some of the stuff you were asking about, like the, the languages and the like the, the classical past and the pagan past might sort of be part of that. What's um, that thing where like, you, what you pointed out in the in our like is a text thread prep that like why are they phoenicians yes yes exactly. or like yeah. all kinds of like i i wrote down a lot of them because i was like this is the weirdest bullshit i've ever seen like because i wanted them to be just you know pagan viking war mongering weirdos <laughs> yeah cool guys oh yeah no they're cool guys yeah right no it, it's like yeah right so that the one is like the the story like the, the milesians who are like the irish people came from spain but actually sort of even older than that came by way of like greece and like phoenicia and stuff like that 23 and me ass whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's like let me just read a little bit because i was like this whole chapter i was like what in the goddamn hell and so like of course this is, you know, the priest doing Owenson's job of being like, this is a his- this is a textbook too. Yeah. If we are to believe Dr. Warner, however, said the priest, the modern Irish are a degenerated race, comparatively speaking, for he asserts that even in the days of Elizabeth, the old natives had degenerated and that the wars of several centuries had reduced them to a state far inferior to that which they were found in the days of Henry II, unquote. But still, like the ancient Greeks, we perceive among them strong traces of a free, a great, a polished, and an enlightened people. Yeah. And that reflects back on that thing that Horatio says early on where he's like, I don't want to go to Ireland because I'm a fan. And it's like, not, it would be better if it were Siberia. Yeah. And then he says something about the polish of people that is something else he's looking for. Yeah. And, and I think that that is actually pointing in a ton of different directions. For one thing, I mean, yeah, like, so it, there, there's a, there's this one form of like kind of British bigotry about the Irish, right? Which is like, you have no history and your country's always been important, right? So it's like one, like really leaning on and in some degree vetted or just like going with these stories about this kind of classical, like, like past that is rooted in like the classical world, right? So there's that. The Greek comparison, that also, there's this whole enlightenment historiography, like kind of idealization of like Greece is like these early republics and democracies. There's that valence, which certainly could in certain contexts have an anti-imperial lens, although also like that was very much part of like the metropolitan ideology as well. I also do just have to note in the Romantic period, Greece itself was perceived to be by a lot of more left wing, we would say kind of radical British writers as an anti-colonial cause because of it, you know, its occupation by the, uh, the Ottoman Empire. Now, of course, like that 
that also on the other side is part of this white supremacist and imperialist, uh, like, and, and, you know, liberal imperialist, but also like not liberal imperialist ideology. But I mean, like Greek, like the Greek independence struggle, you know, in the early 19th century was perceived as an anti-imperial struggle in a lot of ways. So there's a, there's a ton, there's a lot of different directions that are, are present with that, I think. I'm just like sad that she has to be redemptive or something, or I don't mean redemptive. I just mean like it has to make them seem like white, whiter. Yeah, well, that right, and I mean, I think that, that, and I don't mean that obviously. I'm like, let me just sort of like give the PSA of like, I don't really mean that according to our like present day ideology, and I'm not erasing the history of the invention of whiteness, but I think that that's actually like in the undertext here. It is. And and I mean, I think too that particularly once we're into the twentieth century, but even, you know, the the second half of the nineteenth, like, you know, in the in the American context, the the invention of whiteness, which then like the kind of Irish American identity that absolutely like part of this sort of like reactionary uh there's a strain of like kind of reactionary white nationalism there. And and also just the fraughtness around a liberatory politics that departs from this kind of concept of the nation, right? Like, I mean, so uh, Peter King, the law, the shitty, like imperialist Long Island congressman, uh, huge, huge right winger. He, like his office has all these, like, you know, this, this Sinn Féin memorabilia and letters from like, like Jerry what? Adams and stuff like that. Yes. Because right now Sinn Féin is a fucking left wing socialist yeah. party, but that's not what an asshole like Peter King sees. It's all about Irishness. And I actually think that like this novel does to a degree, maybe suggest that in the the impossibility of incorporating the the north into this vision of what ireland is right yeah, it's like there's a moment in yeah. in here yeah yeah there's a moment in here right like and and i and i don't quite know what the novel does think about that but to me it is marked that so ulster is one of the four historic provinces and the novel is kind of saying like this idea of what the nation is this giant part of it cannot be part of that the, the people living there cannot be part of that you know um yeah, it's drawing a really again that's like a national line. Yeah. That it's like really trying to sort of advance the the idea of the nation, right? Like what you were talking about at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah, so I mean like the, the, the this idea of the nation as a sort of like anti-imperial or kind of counter counter-colonial form, but that like yeah, I mean it's just I you definitely do see strains here that I like yeah, I mean like that ancient Greek shit. It's like from a 21st century perspective, certainly we see directly how that leads into like white supremacist thinking. That's not what Owenson wants to do with it, but like starting from that position of like the essential character of anything it's like you really are dancing on some very kind of reactionary territory you know i guess i just also wonder two things well there's no vision of anything what's the ideal thing that we're doing i think it's the it's exciting but also smart sexy character of the irish girl right it's like that the irish woman would do a particular task of rep you know in quotes representing irish but that person insufferably trades french lines of poems with her fancy lad yes I mean, I I don't know if it succeeds, but I think that that's its like end. Yeah, like what the novel is most interested in is one this kind of celebration of like Irish uh, Irishness, Irish history, which does have this political point as a 
you know, one, just like you don't discount it, uh, you know, to the, to the colonizer, but, but also, yeah, just, you know, this, this, this kind of the sense of like this, this sort of like shared identity, uh, symbolized through this woman, Glorvina, but she also like, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the patriarchy, uh, which one, like kind of in the collapsing sense of the old Irish patriarch, but also in the English fuck off, that's unavoidable because like, you know, that's part of the power structure, but ultimately like, the novel really thinks that it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it does, yeah. you know, it wants to flag, uh, you know, why it's ridiculous and just kind of wants us to tell us, a, you know, a cool story about like, Oh, the Milesians and like the Irish used to love the bard and, you know, all this, all this other kind of stuff. And also, yeah. And also, Hey, the poverty, that is a direct fucking oh, yeah. fault of like, you know, colonialism. So anyway. I do think though, I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent and like, I, it, the the critique of co- the colony is real but also like this is mostly just dork shit oh yeah no i mean yes very yeah very walter scottish sure <laughs> she's got a heavy renfair vibe like sorry sydney but i mean she did you know very uh much take to playing her harp as glorvina you know when she wrote this so yeah I, I dig it okay katie do you have a game for us today marks the triumphant return of the buzzfeed quiz Yay. we've missed you you're back, BuzzFeed quiz, and you're worse than ever. Um, <laughs> so, as you may have guessed, we are playing what rightfully should have been the title of this book, Wild Irish Jats. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. We are going to find out if you are a decrepit yet noble success dad, a distant wasp father, or if you are the highest calling of all champion fail son whose unbroken streak of bumbling fuck-ups wins you the love of all dad kind. And also, Aww. you get to fuck a harp lady. <laughs> so are you ready? Yes. I'm trying to steal myself. Yes, I... Whew, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Gird your loins. Girded. Number one. Which of the following superheroes do you fancy yourself? A. Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. No, nobody thinks that. B. The Hamburglar. Or... <laughs> C, Sonic the Hedgehog, the version that has the same teeth as Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean. Hamburglar, for sure. Yeah, no, I was going to I same thing. As a as a good com- commie, I, I like his. Burgling? Re- yes, his burgling and his, re- his redistribution of hamburger wealth. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I thought he ate the burgers. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, just, just <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as he's burgling them. Yeah, he redistributed it to himself. Yeah, he redistributed <laughs> it right. right to his, his stomach, yep. So question number two. What is a promising start to a relationship in your mind? A, you meet a lady. She might be sexy, but since she's wearing a veil, you begin transferring your repressed sexual energy to her father after having a nightmare that she is a butterface. <laughs> okay. B, fall six stories through a skylight into the arms of a dying guy. or c words cannot convey your affections you just know it's going well if you spend 75 percent of your time crying fake sleeping and shoving an entire greenhouse down your pants the third one oh i yeah i don't know i'll i'll take the skylight with this time that that (laughs) very i don't know so and we're you know so little physical activity these days with the quarantine that's true yeah just get out a little bit fall through a skylight and you know fall into some guy that you're vaguely or more than vaguely horny for yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) sounds like a party to me yeah 
Yeah. And speaking of parties, question <laughs> number three, what's your ideal bachelor party? Oh, Christ. Chris, Tristan, did you have a bachelor party? Fuck no. God. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think it had. I had just never crossed my mind to even ask. I no, was like, I don't like no, so. No, I actually had a couple friends who were like, well, you're not even a bachelor party. Like, it's like, I am almost 30 years old. Why would I do something like that? You know? Also, I can drink anytime know, and go to a strip right. club anytime. And, and it's also just like this. It's like, oh, yeah, your freedom's over or whatever. It's like, can we make this any more grossly misogynist and heteronormative and everything else? You know? Yeah, that's true. All I don't know the now is that you're not fine. Well, I think <laughs> I think you already knew that. <laughs> I didn't have one either. I'm not like. I, so I what, do right. like that at the ripe old age of my late twenties. <laughs> I was thinking that was like. I mean, no, it is. It actually is. But it's just fun. It's just it, I, I no. Mean, well, I mean, Megan, as you know, I I was like eighty when I was twenty five. True, so. you're you're the oldest man I know. Anyway, so all right, so ideal bachelor party. Let's what's what are our options? Right, we don't know what our choices are yet. A is chilling with the fellas, and by the fellas, I mean taking a journey on horseback with a priest who you ultimately ditch out of overwhelming <laughs> horniness. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention that part of the summary yet. but right. He yeah. literally just rides away because like, he gets too yeah, horny. Yeah, he's like, I can't wait enough. for this fucker. He's like, he's like shut up. I've got a motor. I'm gone, sir. But... <laughs> It's not it's not as good as the part in Joseph Andrews though where the the minister forgets his horse like multiple no. times yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because he's uh, much more likable. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. B is uh hang out with your dad's friends and some babes, sulk about how everyone's boring, start talking a mile a minute like a cocaine guy and then slink off to your bedroom complaining that your tummy hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Yeah. That, that's terrible. Or C, fashion a bunch of roses into a makeshift fleshlight and then faint and cry for three hours because the thorn grazes your dick. <laughs> okay, what's the first one again? Because these sound terrible. It's the, chilling, it's, chilling with the fellas, ditching a priest. Oh, yeah, first no, one that, then, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, definitely. I, I, no, I mean, again, that honestly, that would be me at a bachelor party, putting in a, an appearance, so which would symbolize here and, and talking to the priest for a while and then like fuck this, I'm gone, you know. And doing the old Irish goodbye. Yeah. (laughs) Relevant. (laughs) Incredibly. Couldn't be more relevant. All right, this is for all the marbles. Throw a handful of marbles out a high window and see if they hit. Slip on marbles like you're in Home Alone. (laughs) So uh, question four. As a fun... Sexy, cool guy. Just put yourself in that in that mindset. What's your go to move when you meet a lady you'd like to play your harp? <laughs> Can I draw you a picture? <laughs> <laughs> um, a is uh, get so jealous of a letter she carries in her bosom that you burst into tears and say you're sick. And when she takes your pulse, it's or when she takes your blood pressure, it's four twenty five over nine hundred. <laughs> B is ask her old yet manly dad to push you around in a baby carriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and C is lurk in her boudoir, hide in the curtains like a five-year-old, and then sneak up behind her and scream as loud as you can. <laughs> I can't believe he does that for real. Literally does it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry. So what would the, would the question for these scenarios again? 
Uh, how we get like, a how we get a lady, right? How we get a lady. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that the, the it was not the drawing because my drawing skills were about. I mean, my four year old son is better than me. It would be like, did you see this stick figure with the dress? That's you. I try. You know, like, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I love you. I don't know. I think like getting uh, really melodramatic and having a stroke over the over the letter that's you know that's always you know yeah <laughs> i don't know i want to be pushed around in a wheelbarrow like a <laughs> like a baby like i am baby yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. daddy push me around like a tiny tiny baby it's baby yoda everyone a special guest on the pod <laughs> so you're doing baby carriage yeah all right so tristan you're doing um Rapid heart rate. Yeah. See a doctor named Glorvina immediately. Jealous, I mean, jealous about a letter. Yeah, I mean letters are extremely horny, as we've established. So yeah, the the horniest of genre. Okay, um, let me do the calculations here. Wow, this is a weird split. Um, <laughs> am I am I the dad from the Avengers? Who's the who's the CGI guy? I am unfamiliar. I have not yet yeah. been avenged. Yeah, yeah. Don't bother. They're all like 45 hours long. I have fallen asleep in more than one of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that was our contribution to the Marvel Universe, friends. Yes. If you don't <laughs> want to listen to the podcast anymore, if you want us to talk about the Marvel something MCU, Marvel something yeah. universe. Cinematic. Cinematic? Cinematic. Okay, yeah, cinematic. Cinematic. Yeah. You both narrowly eke out the fail son but you both had so ham burglar is distant wasp father because he burgled the land oh shit megan you have like a very interesting split where you encompass my mother's been married so many times <laughs> you are every dad Oh, weird! Like you're you're split. You're all you narrowly eke out the fail son, but you're every dad. Tristan, you are also every dad, but you eke out decrepit yet noble success dad. Ah, okay. Well, (laughs) I feel like I can live with that on Tristan's behalf. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. And Megan, I mean, congratulations (laughs) for being all dads to all people. Yeah. Yeah. And and ultimately the fail son who is the true dad of them all. And the because and the, he's the only one who can say you're not my real dad. And the focus of our show, really, you know. <laughs> That's true. The fail son is our most timeless trope. Yeah. It is. There are so many. There are so many. But nonetheless, this has been better than dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywell. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if it's to tell us what kind of dad you are, you must make specific reference to a literary dad. But <laughs> it can't be it can't be Leopold Bloom because I called it. <laughs> <laughs> Our intro music is left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe still have stickers they're so cool next week we have william faulkner's absalom absalom and then we'll be wrapping up season three with one of our little recap episodes they're fun and goofy and thank you comrades
and Rome Who bravely stood Three hundred men and three men And there I prayed I yet might see Her fetters rent in twain And Ireland long a province Be a nation once again A nation once again a nation once again